Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, it's on page 10 uh, and 11 of the Pew Bible. Tonight we are in Genesis chapter 15 as we continue our study of the pilgrim, Abraham, beginning at verse 7 tonight through 21. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. How do you convince someone when your word to them doesn't seem enough for them? Say you tell them something that's too good to be true or too hard to believe. And they say, no, no way. The way this went when we were kids in my neighborhood, as perhaps for many of you, was we might, you know, spread some news in the neighborhood. Hey, there's a a new kid moving into the house down the street, we might say. And someone would say, no, that isn't true. I heard it's an old couple. No, no, I promise. It's a kid. No, there's no way. It's not. No, it really is. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Oh, oh, really? Well, how cool. Let's go meet him, right? Uh, Something about cross my heart and hoping to die and sticking needles in my eye. Well, that, I mean, that was persuasive, (laughs) you know. Well, in our passage tonight, something like that, not identical, is happening to assure Abraham and his offspring, even us, of something that God has promised. And so let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis 15 and see just how uh, we can trust our God. Genesis 15 tonight, we're in verses 7 through 21. Hear now the word of God. And he said to him, that is the Lord, said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete when the sun had gone down and it was dark 
Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our heart. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, speak, we pray, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Abram is once again anxious about the promises of God to him. He asks for assurance. And by way of context, before I outline our passage, we just want to think about, again, why and, and, and how. Uh, why? Well, remember where we are in the story. In Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, back there, God made massive promises to Abram. God promised him a people, a great nation, promised him a place, a land, promised him protection. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Promised him a, a, a plan through your seed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. He even promised him a purpose. Be a blessing. Abram. So a people, a place, protection, purpose, plan, all these great, incredible promises to him. And then we saw famine and Pharaoh threaten the promises. Or better, we might say, threaten Abram's faith in the promiser. And Abram failed the test, but but Yahweh the Lord God was faithful to him. Then we saw in chapter 13, prosperity and family strife threatened. They hit Lot and Abram. So Lot takes some land for himself and Abram goes and takes other land away from Lot. But God said to Abram, even the land Lot has taken, all the land you can see in every direction, that's still for you and your offspring, Abram. Then in chapter 14, Lot was taken captive by foreign kings, but Abram rescued him in a daring night raid and the victory was celebrated as The victory of God Most High, by the blessing of God Most High, God had protected him. God had been faithful time and again. Last week we saw in chapter 15, 1 to 6, God comes to Abram and calms his fears, saying, Abram, do not fear. I am your shield and your very great reward. I am your safety and I am your supply, I'm everything you need, I'm for you, I'm not against you. And so God reassured him that the promise of offspring as multitude of the stars was true. So time and again, whether in Abram's failures or Abram's successes, we see God is absolutely bound and determined to keep his word. Come what may, no one can thwart him. Nothing can get in his way. Not famine, not Pharaoh. Not family squabbles, not foreign kings. Not Abram's fears. And there's a lesson in there for us about our God. It is true what Isaiah 46, 9-11 says. I am God 
and there is no other, says the Lord. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. This is true. And when you and I face famine or fatness, trouble with family or trouble with kings, fears and doubts due to hard circumstances or weak faith, God wants to assure us, his children, that every promise he has ever made to us is yes and amen and will be fulfilled. So he's going to assure Abram here. Now tonight in our passage, Abram asks for reassurance, really at God's prompting. God brings the subject up again, promising it again, and God does reassure him. Now how does he do so? He does so by means of covenant. One last thing before we get to our outline. How does he do it? He does it by covenant. Years ago, some of you remember this, of course, in advertising uh, or an, ad- an advertisement concerning a product to help with stomach acid asked, how do you spell relief? R-O-L-A-I-D-S, right? Rolades gives us relief. Well, we might ask, in the Bible, concerning God's promises, how do you spell assurance? And it is C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T, covenant. Covenant gives us assurance of God's promises. God's covenant helps us to trust God's promises. So what I want to do with this passage is highlight three things with you, walk you through them. In the first place, in verses 7 to 12, we see and are reminded of how needy we are for assurance. And in verses 13 to 16, we, we receive insight into God's plan for his people that aids our assurance. And finally, we see in verses 17 to 21, we see the depth of God's commitment to us that guarantees our assurance. So in verses, uh, so we're reminded of how needy we are. We see, receive insight into his plan and we see the depth of his commitment. So let me walk you through that in verses 7 to 12 in the first place. We're reminded of how needy for assurance we are. Verse 7, God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But Abram says, how am I to know? How do I know that I shall possess it? Now again, this was the second question of the chapter. Back at verses 1 to 6, the question was over the promised son. How do I know I'm going to have offspring? Now it's a question over the land. How, I, how do I know that I and my offspring are going to get the land? And God there in 1 to 6 had said, your offspring, even though you're childless, even though you're getting old in your age, your offspring are certain, Abram, even from your own loins. In verse 4, uh, your very own son shall be your heir. So God, what does he do to assure him there? He reiterates the promise. Then he takes him and he gives him a visible sign of the verbal promise. He takes him outside and he says, look at the stars, count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. A massive multitude. So he gives him this picture to confirm or to help him believe the promise. And how did Abram respond then? At verse 6 it says he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So he stood firm in faith. 
He believed the Lord. So when you get to verse 7 and 8, and Abram's saying, how can I know that I shall possess it? I don't think that we're meant to understand him as having turned suddenly on a dime into complete and utter unbelief. But rather it is faith-seeking assurance. Not bold unbelief here, I believe. He's saying, Lord, I believe, help me continue holding on to your promise. Um, You might compare this to uh, kind of an old-fashioned story if you consider the world without cell phones, Facebook, and email. But imagine there's you know, a young man and a young woman. They fall in love at university. They've got a year of school left. During the summer term, the, the man is going to go away for a time. He's going to be long distance away from the girl whom he loves. And so back in that day, you wrote letters or you paid like 26 cents a minute you know, on a landline. But, um, but you wrote letters. And so they begin to write letters back and forth and as happens sometimes when people are writing letters they get more bold on paper than they would in person and he says I love you and will you marry me and he sends it off and he gets a letter back and he anxiously opens the letter and after a few pleasantries she says regarding the question yes, yes I will marry you So he's ecstatic, of course, he responds to her, he writes her back, they're thrilled, but then as time goes by and he hasn't seen her yet, he begins to think to himself, does she have any idea what she's getting into? I mean, she's socially a cut above me. If she marries me, there's a kind of level of uh, ease and uh, support I won't be able to provide her. Uh, I'm not worthy of her. And he begins to wonder, has she really considered all these things before giving her answer? So, I mean, doesn't she know I've outkicked my punt coverage? Doesn't she know I'm marrying up and she's marrying down? And so summer passes and they're delighted to see each other again. And when the moment is right for him to raise the issue with her, he says now, now, Do you realize these things? Why does he do that? Does he want her to say, you know you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. This thing's off. I made a snap decision. I gave you an irrational answer. I didn't really think through all the implications here. We should not give. Is that what he wants? No, of course. That's not a, he wants to hear you silly. I love you. And yes, I've thought about all these things. And of course, I want to marry you. They don't make any difference. So you see in that illustration, his concern is not uh, a matter of, of doubt so much as seeking greater assurance of that which he has already been told. He wants to know, he wants help in knowing that this wonderful dream is going to be a reality. And I think that's Abraham's situation here. Lord, how may I know? Help me go on believing. And so God says, you know what? Go gather up these animals. These would have been animals that uh, we learn later are all acceptable at the altar of sacrifice. Gather up these animals. And Abram evidently seems to know exactly what he's supposed to do. We're not told how he knows this. We do know he's been offering sacrifices at the altar. But here it's a little different. He gathers 
gathers up the animals. He chops them up in half down the spine, lays them out with a path between them. And what is it that's going to happen? Well, Yahweh, the Lord God, is going to to make a covenant with him. And it seems as though Abram understands that by what he does in laying them out. And the covenant is designed to assure Abram. He had the promise, but the covenant is something more. Covenant is what God does when he gets formal about his promises in order to assure us. Covenant is the wrapper around the promise that helps us believe it. Imagine you're going to the grocery store and you want to buy vegetables, but at this particular grocery store, there are no labels on the cans in the vegetable aisle. But there's a guy who works for the store at the end of the aisle and he just says, well, what is it you want? And you say, well, I want the Del Monte green beans. You know, and he just walks you down the aisle and he shows you the part where the silver, you know, naked can is shining tinny away. And he says, well, that's, that's your cut green beans. You know, it, it may undoubtedly be true, right? He works for the store. He knows exactly where everything is, but you wouldn't be satisfied with that. You wouldn't want that. It would, it would create more jobs, of course, but what you want is the picture wrapped around the can with the cut green beans on it. It's something I think like that going on here. God takes trouble to enter covenant with his people in order to help us trust and believe what he has said is true is true. And he doesn't just say to us, Abram, stop struggling with faith. Just buzz off. Go by the bumper sticker. I said it. That settles it. You believe it. You know, that, I think I reversed the way that bumper sticker goes, but God doesn't say that to him. He says, no, Abraham. I will condescend to stoop down to lift you up and so, that you are, so that you know. And so uh, he strengthens him by means of covenant. And he wants him to be assured. And assurance is absolutely necessary for our souls. Assurance is vital to our health as Christians. Not necessarily vital to our being a Christian, but vital to our health. For our soul to really rest in God's love and grace. For us to find happiness and joy in the family of God. I mean, consider how rare a thing it is for a child to grow up strong and confident and ready to face the world if they grew up in a family where they were forever in doubt if those who were raising them actually loved them. Or how difficult it is, how rare for a wife to really thrive personally and certainly to thrive in her relationship with her husband, if the husband alternately says, I love you, and I love you not. I'm glad I married you. I want a divorce from you. I'm so happy that we're together, and I so despise you and wish I'd never met you. It happens. And it makes it hard. It makes it Very hard. It makes us ask all kinds of difficult questions. Can I count on this person? Can I count on this family? When push comes to shove, are they going to be in my corner? 
Am I all alone? Am I the only one holding this relationship together? We weren't weren't made to live in that kind of insecurity. And if that's been our experience, often people start to look for love elsewhere. Because we long for, we long for never stopping, never giving up unbreakable, always and forever love. We long for that and we thrive in that. Well, God knows the weakness of our faith in holding on to his promise to love us. And so he stoops to bind himself to us, not just with promise, but by covenant. So he makes a covenant or literally he cuts a covenant. And so Abram gathers the pieces, lays them side by side, and God confirms and thereby assures Abram. Now, the second thing we see is this. We receive insight into God's plan for God's people. In verses 13 to 16, after the cutting of the animals, before the drama with the animals, there are words of explanation. And they speak to the future. They reveal God's plan plans not only just for Abram but for his offspring and for the land and for the people who already live in that land and that clarity itself is designed to help Abram designed to aid his assurance and his descendants assurance and he tells them it's going to be a long time and it's going to be a hard time and there's going to be a good time but it's going to happen at the right time think about those things when is all this going to happen verse one I mean uh In the first place, he tells them it will be a long time before the promise finds fulfillment. The end of verse 13, your offspring, it says, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And he says it's going to be for 400 years or four centuries or later he'll speak of four generations, thinking of a generation as a hundred year lifespan. Now, this goes against the grain of our expectations. We want God to work quickly. We're a microwave culture. Uh, We want the kingdom to come in fullness immediately. And God says, Abram, you're going to have to wait. And your descendants are going to have to wait. I'm not in a rush. I'm not in a panic. It won't be in your time, Abram. But you will grow old and die in peace. It won't even be, and he doesn't name the children, but it won't be in Isaac's day. It won't be in Jacob's day. Yes, in Joseph's day, they'll go down into Egypt and get enslaved, but it'll be when he's dead and that whole generation is gone that they come up out of Egypt, back into freedom and enter into the promised land. It's going to be a long time. And it's going to be a hard time, he says. Notice the verses, end of verse 13 and 14. There's going to be suffering. You will be enslaved in Egypt You will be afflicted, he says. Cruel treatment as if slavery wasn't bad enough. Now, how does that assure us? Well, in one way, it tells us you can trust this God. This God has integrity. It's going to be a long and hard time, Abram. I'm going to tell you about it up front. I'm not going to hide that from you. I'm going to give it to you straight. So that when you and your descendants see it happening, you know this is exactly what I said would happen. That this is my plan and I am not failing you, but I am fulfilling my word to you. And this is what Jesus does for us too, for his disciples. In John 15 verse 19, he tells his disciples, And us, if you were of the world, he says, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He is forewarning and thereby forearming and reassuring his people. You don't strengthen people by telling them that it's going to be easy to follow God or to wait in hope on his promises. You help disciples by teaching them that there, that there will be trouble, but no trouble that will keep Jesus from being faithful to them. And the God in whom they trust tells the truth. So it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a hard time. Yet when the promise is fulfilled, it will be a good time. End of verse 14. Afterward, after all this enslavement and cruel treatment, they will come out with great possessions. He's speaking here of the plunder of the Egyptians, which Exodus records happened. They, as they were leaving slavery, they turned to their Egyptian neighbors and said, what can you give us? And the Egyptians freely gave them silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and they went out rich, just as promised here. This was a kind of justice for their enslavement and mistreatment by God, a provision when everything nearly had been taken from them. It, of course, doesn't undo the cruel treatment, but it is a kind of financial compensation for their cruel treatment. There's going to be a coming good time, but none of this will happen until the right time or the righteous time. Notice, again, when will this happen? Not a moment too soon, not until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. That's when this will happen. End of verse 16. You're going to have 400 years of long, cruel treatment in Egypt. And at verse 16, as the Egyptians are judged for that, so likewise the Amorites who live in this land will be judged too. But not until 400 years from now. In other words, this is good news if you're an Amorite. This is the proclamation of good news. Abram, I'm giving your descendants this land, but it is occupied for now by others. They shall be allowed to remain. They shall not be driven off until by their sins they are rightfully expelled. But not until then. And their iniquity is not yet full. And think of that. They're going to have 400 years in a land where Abram has built altars to the one true God. Where Abram has proclaimed the gospel among his neighbors. Where Melchizedek, a priest of God most high, is king in Jerusalem. They're not going to be without access to the true God. If they will avail themselves. 400 years, in other words, of patience. Of long suffering with them. Of an opportunity to repent before God comes. Do you see how long suffering the Lord is? Maybe you think 40 or 50 years of national wickedness is long enough. Surely God ought to wipe them off the face of the earth. And I would say, well, you're too quick tempered. Your God is slow to anger. 
You ask, well, when the time came for Israel to go into the promised land, they were commanded to cut off the Amorites. Even, you read, their infants. No one was to be left alive. Why? It was, the Bible is saying, for the sake of justice. It was not a war. The the entrance of the Israelites into the promised land was not a war of aggression. It, It was not an assertive ambition on the part of kings. It was God's own justice being administered by his people against a nation that had been given four centuries of patience in which to repent. God timed the arrival of his judgment with the fullness of the sin to be judged and not before. So let's not us ignore the lesson here of God's patience and justice if if we are living in rebellion against the Lord, don't flatter yourself that God doesn't see, that God doesn't know, or that God doesn't care. He sees and he knows it all. And today is a day of patience toward you. He is long-suffering to you, and today is therefore a day of salvation offered to you. Repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins before your time is also up. Now all of this insight into God's future plans was designed to help Abram and his offspring go on trusting God and trusting his goodness to them despite difficult circumstances. Despite all visible evidence to the unbelieving eye seemingly to the contrary of God's goodness. But Abram, I'm being good to you and your offspring. And I will be, I assure you. Now that's the second thing. And finally, in the third place, we see the depth of God's commitment to us in verses 17 to 21. Abram has set up the slain animals. He's heard the words reiterated of promise. And he's put into a deep sleep. Verse 12, he's passive. He's sleeping. He receives... Uh, the vision or uh, he receives it in a vision or a dream and what is it that's happening here with the the smoking pot and the the flaming torch passing through the pieces what's happening well there's an incident in Jeremiah chapter 34 which is long after the time of Abram it's the time of Daniel but there's an incident in Jeremiah 34 that helps us to understand the ceremony Yahweh is taking on the curse of the covenant in Genesis 15. And we we can see that in Genesis 34. If you were to turn there sometime, much later than Abram, but what's going on? Well, the Babylonians are fighting against Jerusalem, and some of Judah's men have made a covenant with God that said God would save them from the Babylonians if they released their Hebrew slaves into freedom. The, the men were the, the people were keeping and then slaving their own uh, Hebrew brothers, and so they were going to release them, and God was going to save them. And as a sign and seal of the agreement that they would do so, the Hebrews marched. It says between pieces of animals that had been cut in two, and they entered into a solemn covenant with the Lord. And in that covenant, they were saying this: If I am unfaithful to my promise. May it be done to me what was done to these animals. 
It was calling down a curse upon themselves should they break their word. And of course, what happens there is the Babylonians temporarily lift their siege of the city. The men begin to think that what they had done in releasing their slaves was a foolish thing and they re-enslave them. And so God brings against them the curse of the covenant that they had brought upon themselves. And God says to them, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. And that illustrates what's happening here in Genesis chapter 15. Yahweh the Lord God in the form of the smoking pot and the flaming torch. Symbols picked up later in the Bible for him. The visible pillar of fire leading the Israelites for instance. Yahweh passing between the parts of the animals in the form of these visible representations while Abram is asleep but dreaming and hearing and Yahweh is taking upon himself the curse of the covenant. If I am not true to my promise to you, Abram, may it be done to me, the Lord God, what has been done to these animals. Now the curse didn't make the promise any more sure. After all, God doesn't lie. But the curse called on himself by God made Abram more sure of the promise. God will do that? If he were to be unfaithful to his promise? Yes, God says, I will do that. It's astonishing. But there is more here than just that, for this is a picture of what happens upon the cross. When Jesus is hung upon a cross, he is there. Why? Not because he has been unfaithful to us, but because we have been unfaithful to God in the covenant we have with God, in the binding relationship we have with God, where we are duty-bound as his creatures to honor and obey, love and serve him. And Jesus is on that cross in our place and on our behalf bearing the curse of the covenant for us. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's an interesting story about Rabbi John Duncan. He was a Christian called a rabbi. He taught Hebrew and what was his nickname? So well loved. He was teaching in seminary in Edinburgh and in the winter of 1864 he was reading Isaiah in the Hebrew with his senior class and something in the text brought to mind the cry for him of Psalm 22 verse 1 my God my God why have you forsaken me now you have to picture the scene Rabbi Duncan here he's left his desk he's He's nearly bent over double. He's pacing up and down in front of the benches of his students. One hand holds a handkerchief and a snuff box, and the other has a huge pinch of snuff in it. And these are forgotten as he's musing over the Lord's suffering for sinners, turning the matter over in his mind, absorbed in these truths and suddenly a flash seems to go through him his face lights up his hands go up uh, the snuff just flies everywhere and he turns to his class and he pleads with them I, I, do you know what it was dying on the cross forsaken by his father do you know what it was what what 
And, and those last two questions may have come from a student and uh, as if to drag a, a, a reply or, or a, a complete answer out of him. And so he answers his own question. What? What? It was damnation. And he took it lovingly. And then he plops down in his chair, his neck stiff, his arms hung, worn out at his side. His face is beaming. He's got tears streaming from his cheek, down his eyes on his cheeks. And in the mix, the story as recorded says between a, a half sob and a half lie, he repeats himself. It was damnation. And he took it lovingly. This is what Genesis 15 is about. A God who is willing to suffer the curse of the covenant for your assurance of salvation. That is how deep his commitment to us and to Abraham goes. That is great news. Just put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. You are so good. That you would spare not your own son, but give him up for us all upon the tree. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to you. Thank you. We bless you. We need you. We are sinners in need of this grace. Help our souls to rest in your loving mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond and sing in praise to the Lord.